Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by Dr. Fred Travis as part of the mini-series on Maharishi Vedic Science. Dr. Travis is chair of the Department of Maharishi Vedic Science at Maharishi International University, dean of the graduate school, and director of the Center for Brain, Consciousness, and Cognition. In this episode, Dr. Travis describes the points of contention regarding the nature of consciousness between Vedic science and Western science, including the explanatory gap. We next discuss the states of consciousness and the different physiological characteristics of each. From there, Dr. Travis explains the different types of intelligence, the different types of meditation, and how to know if you've experienced transcendental consciousness. We then dive into the ongoing paradigmatic revolution from materialist to consciousness-based cosmology. We next consider whether consciousness is non-localized and how medicine will change when we switch to a consciousness-based paradigm. From there, we discuss TM versus psychedelics and the phenomenon of unconstrained cognition. We end the conversation discussing the collective consciousness, field effects of consciousness, and their implications for the viability of world peace. Outros available for this and all episodes available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. This outro is titled Neuroscience and Consciousness Explaining the Explanatory Gap. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm so excited to be joined by Dr. Fred Travis. Dr. Travis, how are you doing today? Very good. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Well, excited to have you on as part of our um, Maharishi Vedic Sciences miniseries. This is super fun for me to get to interview you. Uh, for the listener's benefit, Dr. Travis is a... Uh, Chair of the Department of Maharishi Vedic Science at Maharishi International University, as well as the director for the Center for Brain Consciousness and Cognition. So pretty, uh, pretty incredible uh, work you get to do professionally, I have to say. <laughs> it is. I get to look at the brain, which is concrete, to understand consciousness, which is very abstract. Yeah. And so what what uh, got you interested in the brain? And would you say it was your interest was first on the concrete side or on the subjective side of consciousness? It started with the experience itself of transcending and a very real experience, a very profound change in my life. So I decided to go on and get a PhD looking at psychology. And as part of um, the studies, I received my degree here at Maharshi International University. As part of the studies, we looked at development, development across the lifespan, and then development of higher states. Uh, we looked at cognition and perception. How do we know the world? We looked at biopsychology, mm -hmm. how you can understand the brain to understand the mind. And that just really attracted me because on one level, it's very concrete. You can hold the brain in your hand. You have a, a, a machine. The machine's giving you data. It's something very... On one level, real. It's materialistic. And then within that, what you're seeing is what is the consciousness that's driving it? And so suddenly you could have as if a flashlight, a physical flashlight into something which is non-physical. So that's what attracted me. And I did my PhD looking at what are the effects of people transcending on the brain? What are the effects over time? Mm -hmm. This in individual experience, how does it become infused with activity? 
And I went off and did a postdoc in basic sleep research to understand how you use the body to understand sleep state. And came back to MIU in 1990 to use the same tools, EEG machines, um, physiological measures to understand higher states of consciousness. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. Um, and so for folks who've been listening to the whole mini series, there's probably going to be some overlap. But for folks who may be just listening to this one, could you explain what um, what you mean when you say transcending? Yes, this is such a key point, Jordan. Um, transcending is very common sense is going beyond. And specifically, it talks about a meditation techniques, transcendental meditation, where you learn to go beyond the active thinking level of the mind. Typically, we're caught up in one thought and then another thought and then another perception and so on. And we'll go from thought to thought. James called it a stream of consciousness. It's just constantly moving. William James, 100 years ago, talked about it as a stream of consciousness, just a series of events going on and on. But what is it that connects them together? And the process of transcending is a process of allowing the attention to begin to recede from uh, become less identified with the actual changing thoughts and beginning to experience what is the silence underneath? What is the silence between thoughts? Mm. And what it, it's experientially, what happens is the thoughts become less engaging, less predominant in awareness, and then a feeling of fullness and and silence and wholeness begins to predominate. So that's the process of transcending. It's on one level, it's expanding rather than transcending. But the idea of transcending is to go beyond active thinking level to an inner field of silence. Interesting. And so um, as you think about what um, what work is being done on the states of consciousness at MIU versus uh, and what I'll call, you know, like the, the body of Maharishi Vedic science versus what's traditionally accepted in traditional neuroscience. Could you talk about kind of what are some of the points of contention today? Points of contention are based on two things. One is paradigm. That is, is it the brain which produces conscious experience? And research actually supports that. You can physically stimulate the brain and it can lead to a conscious experience. Mm. Or you ask someone to compared to statues, which one is more pleasing? Part of the brain is active. You use transcranial magnetic stimulation and you actually subject a magnetic field to that area of the brain and the person stops being able to have that type of judgment. Yeah. So you know the, the research is strong. The other side, but what this, this paradigm has done is it's reached a brick wall. That is, Science can say in a very precise way, okay, light hits the retina of the eye. Okay, it goes here, it goes to four places in the brain. One of them is the thalamus, then center of the brain. Then it goes to the back surface of the brain. It's called the occipital cortex. And that's where you actually pick, up, pick out features. And then it, you get a ringing of processing. And that's taking these features and putting them together. But they don't know where does it become a conscious experience. It's called the explanatory gap. The explanatory gap between physiological functioning and subjective experience. And wow. they've been stuck there since the late 1990s. And now many people, not just Maharshi Vedic science, but many thinkers, philosophers, neuroscientists are saying, well, maybe we should start with consciousness. 
because what we see around us is patterns of activation. So anything which can create patterns could be more fundamental. And consciousness can create patterns just interacting with itself. So mm -hmm. Philip Goff with um, his uh, panpsychism, Tononi with his information theory, they're all beginning to expand the idea that somehow consciousness may be fundamental. Yeah. And this That's is really the this is the main paradigmatic difference, I think, between neuroscience and what I do. Other labs have EEG machines and they record EEG uh, activity during different tasks, but how they interpret what they see would be different. Interesting. Yeah. And could we talk about some of those physiological differences in the different states of consciousness? Yeah. Um, right now, what's in most of your listeners' brains, it's a very fast activity. It's called gamma. Uh, it's 20 to 50 cycles per second. And this frequency has to do with interneurons that are connecting small areas of the brain. What you're doing is you're taking one specific experience out of the flood of information coming in. Mm. And that's what you see when you're thinking and processing. You actually have to reduce the amount of information in, get the one or two items that you want to follow and put your attention on it. And then there's what we see during, um, say, a memory task. You close your eyes and you're thinking about your drive home and how you're going to be navigating the roads and so on. And you actually see a different frequency pattern is generated from the memory centers of the brain. It's called mm -hmm. theta. Goes up and down five to eight times per second. And you see that whenever the attention is on internal mental processing. So we have the outer world gamma, internal mental processing, theta. And then we have the frequency of transcending. That is where the awareness is awake, but you're not processing, you're not the outside world, you're not processing thoughts, you're not processing feelings. It's just an experience of being. And with that, we see a frequency, it's between eight and 10 cycles per second. And what that represents is just a resting rhythm of the cortex. Core of the brain, the thalamus, activates the surface of cortex, cortex sends information back. It's really just humming to itself. Hmm. And then as we get a little bit tired, you see uh, it's low theta, it's about three or four or five cycles per second. And then in deep sleep, where you're repairing the effects of the day's activity, you see a very slow frequency, it's called delta. And in Delta, what's happening is you're shutting off the outside world and you're actually recovering from all of the activity you've been doing during the day. Mm. Wow. Wow, that's really interesting. And so, um, and so, you know, most people I think are familiar with sleeping, uh, dreaming, and waking states of consciousness. But then what are the other, you know, less familiar states of consciousness that, that you're doing a lot of the work on? Great question. And I like to put it in terms of subject-object relationship. In waking, there's a sense of self and there's object. People listening to the podcast, there's a podcast coming in. Uh, they may be walking around, so they're seeing the environment about them, their body's moving, but they're having the experience. There's a, an agent, a core inside having that experience. If they lay down and go to sleep, there's no subject and there's no object. It's They're not dead. They exist. The body is maintaining existence, but you're not processing the outside world. Mm. Now, you can have content without a sense of self. I argue that's what dreaming is. You have this very illusory, bizarre, changing, emotionally 
active laden experiences, but the sense of self is very fragile. Mm -hmm. So that will leave an experience where there's just a sense of self without content. You know, and any, any of the people on the podcast may think for a moment and think, well, you know, how's that possible? How can you be aware of yourself if you're not aware of this inner outer dichotomy? You know, I'm here, the world's out here. How can you be aware of yourself if you're not aware that you're the agent, you know, having that experience? Well, this experience of just self-awareness itself is the experience that comes from transcending. And where the content ceases, but what's there is wakefulness. And it's not a series of events. It's not a stream of consciousness. It's just being, it's awareness itself. It's experienced just as a continuum. The mm -hmm. mind settles down, there's silence, and then the mind becomes active. So, and this is called, in the Vedic tradition, Turiya Chaitana. It's the fourth, is what it's called. And then by switching the, the brain and the mind from inner aware, awareness, pure consciousness, we call it, outside activity, and back again, the body can begin to integrate those two styles of functioning. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is deep inner silence is beginning to permeate our functioning, our thoughts, our activity. And when that field of deep inner silence is there all the time, it's actually a fifth state of consciousness. Uh, Vedic tradition calls it Turiyatit, Chaitana, um, or cosmic consciousness. And in that, the deep sense of self is no longer identified with changing objects and thoughts and things outside. But it knows itself to be the deep inner silence, which is always there, which is the basis of our thoughts and feelings. And we can continue to two other states of consciousness, but they could be going so far beyond, maybe we'll let them rest for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, wow. I think uh, that's, that's really, um, really incredible stuff. And it's, it's like, it's such a, um, you know, uh, counterintuitive to the way like that, that we're raised in the materialist paradigm to even think about the experience of consciousness or, or, you know, what this, what this really is. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I very much came from that background, right. That, you know, just, just didn't, um, felt, felt that anything religious or spirituality oriented was by definition unscientific. Right. So I kind of just dismissed it out of hand. Um, and, you know, very important for my spiritual journey has been the introduction to, uh, Maharishi's theories and all the research that you and everyone at MIU has been doing. And so I'd love if you could talk about just some of the, the really fascinating and, and really just like uh, incredible results of the research that you've, you've found over the last 30 years or so. Excellent. Yes. I will start with the brain. Um, the first thing I noticed when I came to MIU in 1990, so I looked at individuals of the same age who've been meditating for a few months. They just came to MIU. And as you know, everyone learns transcendental meditation in their first class. And the experiences during transcending are part of the dialogue during your education. Compare that to people, same age, but been meditating since they were 10. And much to my surprise, the brain patterns during TM practice were not different between these two groups. The brain patterns that were different was were inactivity. Hmm. And this is a finding that's coming out over and over. And it's because with transcendental meditation, you're learning how to use the natural tendency of the mind. The mind wants to expand. It wants to grow. It wants uh, more knowledge, more vitality. 
And when you learn TM, you put through a step where the simple, innocent steps where the attention can settle down and experience that value inside. And then whenever you sit and let the mind be easy, you practice your TM technique, it knows where it wants to go. Mm -hmm. And so on one level, we should have predicted that people would quickly master TM because it's a natural process. So additional practice doesn't make it go any better. But this was one major finding. This is a point where I started out is that the science is giving us an objective mirror to understand consciousness. Mm -hmm. And what we did find is the degree of integration of this inner silence and activity is what grows. So this is one major finding, which I think has been very useful for myself to direct you know, my research. Also to understand the power of TM, the power of this effortless process of transcending. And I've, and it's something which most scientists don't grok. Effortless. Effortless? Is anything really effortless? <laughs> Is it even thinking? Don't you have to pick up a thought? And a whole idea of something going by itself, something being automatic. I actually use the word automatic because science can accept automatic, they can't accept effortless. So this is one whole chunk of, of what we've been finding. Another major finding is the power of the Vedic chanting. Hmm. And so Veda, it's a, it's a new word here, but if we have this field of silence of pure consciousness interacts with itself, and this interaction is in a very sequential set way, a structured way. And so the structure of this whole field of wholeness, pure consciousness interacting with itself is what's brought out in the Veda and the Vedic literature. Hmm. So we find people either reading the Vedic literature or listening to trained individuals are called pundits chanting the Vedic literature has a very profound effect. And specifically, we see enlivenment of the inner state of pure consciousness of transcending of wholeness along with the mind being active following it. What it's doing, it's actually beginning to develop the ability to be awake inside and slowly begin activity. So that's been another piece. Another piece is um, markers of higher states of consciousness. And your readers have been, listeners who've been following me would probably think, well, it's the marker of EEG with the marker of sleep or waking. And that's indeed what we find. Uh, those two EEG frequencies, the alpha frequency of transcending, of wakefulness is there. And for sleep, the delta activity, the one cycle per second, they're there at the same time when people are simultaneously experiencing inner silence, this continuum of wakefulness, even as a body is sleeping. The same way in waking. Um, people reporting this inner wakefulness throughout the day, they have the alpha activity of transcending along with the EEG of waking. Mm -hmm. And we've called this marker brain integration, integration of alpha deep inner silence. These long range projection fibers are awake along with the ability to focus. And this has led to our, our fourth area where we looked at world-class performers. We asked ourselves, where else will we see this EEG signature? This EEG signature of growing cosmic consciousness of growing integration of pure being, pure consciousness into daily activity, we thought we should see it in successful people. They may not practice any meditation technique, but
But if they're successful, they're somehow able to see beyond the surface chaos around them, see where the fundamentally the situation is heading, and they can come up with creative solutions. So with Harold Harung, we looked at world-class athletes, uh, 66 of them. Uh, they participated in world games, national games, Olympic games. Half of them finished in the top 10 for three seasons. And these individuals had more of this marker of inner wakefulness in the midst of activity than the control athletes, higher levels of brain integration. Found a similar thing in managers. Top level managers, eat CEOs for 18 years, their company had grown. Again, higher levels of brain integration. Hmm. We also looked at classical musicians, professional and amateur classical musicians. And this was a surprise because both had very high levels of brain integration. Mm-hmm. It brings out the culturing effect that the arts, that the aesthetics have on brain functioning. And it also could reflect the fact that if you play an instrument as a child, your brain is wired differently as an adult. There's more cross-frequency connections. So those are some of the, the major touch points of the research we've been doing. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, one of the, um, one of the, uh, research that really stood out to me, um, was with regards to different types of intelligence. And that was something I'd never even really considered before. Right. But it was talking about how, um, TM was shown to prove field independence and creativity and fluid intelligence. And so that, that was just a really unique study to me. And I hadn't seen Frankly, any anything else like uh, modality-wise or, or you know prescribed by I guess the conventional um, side of medicine of how to increase creativity after you kind of reach your your peak adult age is that fair to say? Yes, it is. So, what is generally found? Um, we have to understand the physio- What is the physiology? The physiology is the interface between us and the world. And we've been talking a lot about the brain, but the brain's not some disembodied thing floating around. And it's a lived phenomenon. It's sitting in the body. So your state of sleep, your state of rest, exercise, your diet, um, how you deal with stress, if you have a meditation procedure, what your meditation procedure is, all of these are going to affect how you interact with the world, which is fundamentally what intelligence is. If you ask someone what is intelligence, they may say, well, it's your score on an IQ test or it's your score on, um, it's called Raven's progressive matrices, how well you can use spatial relationships and so on. Hmm. But fundamentally, your ability to see, understand the world and to detect what is the best path for growth. And so you were listing a lot of measures. They've also looked at inspection time, how quickly you take in information. Because if you can take in information faster, they found that's correlated with scores on IQ tests. If you can take information in faster, you can actually get more data points to reflect on. Um, You can see, you can get more of of the bigger picture. Creativity is another measure of IQ. Excuse me, it's another another measure of intelligence. Typically, people want to separate IQ, which is more cognitive, from creativity, which may be maybe more on the feeling level and so on. But they are, as you said, so accurately reflecting our intelligence. And 
what is underlying that? What is underlying that is what's the quality of the interface? If your interface is tired, if it's if you're not physically fit, you don't have good blood flow, um, if you're not having good food, the interface is not going to be allowing you to see the world. So I bring this up, you know, is TM the only way to improve these measures of intelligence? I think if people have a good ideal routine, sleep, exercise, diet, there will be more intelligence that is they're going to be seeing the world in a more truthful way, being able to respond in a more truthful way than someone who is not. If someone adds TM, it's a giant step because what you're doing is you're you're transcending, you're going beyond, you're getting out of the concepts and the habits and, and the boxes that you're in, experience yourself is outside of time and space. And then you come back in again. And when you come back in, when you wake up and open your eyes, you're a different you. Physiologically, what's happened is these wakefulness circuits have been, enli have been enlivened. The brain is able to put parts in the whole, but fundamentally it's you who are different. And that's seen in terms of intelligence it's really interesting and i i've noticed for sure when i've like had the experience of transcending when i come back to the waking state it just feels like everything is just clicked right like it's it's hard to describe but you just i, I feel very present and and uh i don't know clear yeah yeah and it's it's almost it's ineffable you can't really put words to it yeah it's as though the light by which you see the world is now brighter you know, what's changed? Well, everything has changed. And fundamentally, what it is, is just that. The point about being present is so fundamental, because typically, our attention is constantly going out. And suddenly, we're not sitting in a place where we can observe, but we're lost in one experience. And then we gain awareness, and we lost in another experience. But as you identify more with your inner self, that is that part of you that's silent, that's whole, that's becoming an additional experience. And it's a type of centeredness that you don't get by habit, by trying to be mindful of each point in time and, and look at this, what the thought is doing now and letting it go and what's doing now and letting it go. I mean, that whole process just serves to keep you lost in the points and you miss the now. You miss what's actually going on. You just have all of these points. What's the wholeness which is there? So it's a very innocent real experience as you said you're just you're more centered you're more whole you're more there you're more in control you're directing what the mind is doing and so on mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think it's increasingly hard to be in that present moment when we have constant distractions and you've got a cell phone that you know is beeping at you 18 times a minute whatever <laughs> yeah for sure we're in a very fast-paced world and i think for that transcending is it should be a requirement for successful people in today's age because we don't want to slow things down. We don't want to go back to where we were 10 years or 20 years or 30 years ago. The level of understanding of the world around us is just so amazing. We want to increase our ability to take in that information, to see what's important and go more deeply into it. And that's where this idea of transcending, of allowing the awareness, the light to be sharper, brighter, is yes. so important. Wow. Now I wanted to um, clarify one, one question folks might have, um, you know, if, if people who have experimented with meditation and maybe even are, are frequent meditators, but have never had this experience of, you know, um, 
restful alertness that you're describing. Could you maybe clarify the difference between TM uh, and, and some of the other types of meditation out there? Yeah, there's actually two questions in your question. One is different types of meditation. The other is, have I ever experienced pure consciousness? And, <laughs> and it's going to always bring up that question because typically an experience is distinguished by something sensory, something feeling, something bodily. And that makes it different from another sensory bodily feeling experience. When you transcend, you're going beyond qualities. You're going beyond characteristics. And it's just being. It's just wakefulness itself. And so typically what will happen in your transcendental meditation practice, you begin the procedure. Everything's becoming quiet. Everything's settling down. And then the thought will come up, oh, did I just experience the transcending? That actual experience is real. But it's not a cognitive act. And so if your intellect is overactive, it's always going to bring up that question. And so how do we know that, yes, we're transcending, we're getting to that state and coming out is how we feel afterwards. Mm. As you're saying, just so wonderfully, you feel clear and centered. Yes, you know that's happening. And there are different types of meditation, and they have different purposes, different procedures. Uh, we talked about three categories of meditation. One is focused attention. And in that, you're keeping one experience in the mind. We talked about this in terms of gamma. We have interneurons to keep a small brain area active. And in these types of meditations, the brainwave you see is gamma EEG. They're very effortful. They're very controlling attention, not allowing the attention to move. Um, Vipassana, focusing on breath or Zen, keeping the attention in one part of the head or keeping the attention on one idea. These are all examples of focused meditation. Mm -hmm. Then there's a, another level of meditation where rather than keeping your attention on one experience, it allows all experiences to go through awareness. And you allow them to go through in a non-judgmental way. We talked about this before in terms of mindfulness. So what is the thought? You note it and let it go. You don't try to control, you don't try to justify, you don't try to change, you just note it and you let it go. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing this type of process, you see a different brainwave, it's called theta. And again, we talked about theta is a brainwave of just following internal mental processing. And meditations in these two categories, what they're doing is they're developing cognitive abilities that you can use after meditation. For focusing the mind, um, you're in a very turbulent environment. You have to keep your attention on one thing and ignore everything going around you. If you do a focused attention meditation, you'll find, yes, you'll be naturally able to focus. Because whatever you do during the meditation, you'll see after the meditation. Hmm. Um, if it's mindfulness, and again, you're maybe you're in a, a discussion and you're finding the emotions are really rising, rather than getting caught up in their emotions and just being caught up with the anger just by being mindful of it and letting it go, you'll find that it's diminished. You're not so affected by it. So it has that value in that situation. And transcending, what you're doing is just that. You're going beyond thoughts. You're going beyond feelings, that feeling of wakefulness. And that procedure is fundamentally different because if there's any trying, any doing, the mind's not going to naturally settle down. 
Mm. You're going down from a place of focus activity than one of just wakefulness. And if there's any localized activity, it keeps the mind in that localized area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So transcending is fundamentally different. And and the what occurs from regular transcending is that experience of inner silence then becomes part of your day. Mm-hmm. Other meditations um, are like developing a specific tool to use. TM is like sharpening the tool. Mm-hmm. It's not developing a specific cognitive ability, but it's allowing everything that we do to be more awake, more integrated. Wow. Beautifully said. Um, so I would love to uh, change topics a little bit and ask you about, um, you know, the far reaching implications of this consciousness based paradigm. Right. And I think one of the things that um, attracted me to MIU was just how far reaching it is. Right. The work you're doing in neuroscience, what Dr. Hagelin's doing in quantum physics. Right. It's it's pretty, uh, pretty fantastic. So I would love if you could just comment on that. You know, what what relationship does do those two fields have in this consciousness paradigm? Yeah, we're in the middle of a paradigmatic revolution. Um, We're in the middle of people thinking that matter is primary and they're pretty much have no power to change what's going on to a point where no consciousness is primary. Mm -hmm. And being primary, it means that we are in control. By our conscious decisions, we can decide our experiences, we can decide how the brain is functioning, we can decide ultimately how we see the world. And so this is where MIU and all of the disciplines at MIU are doing. They're presenting what will this new paradigm look like in which consciousness is fundamental? What will it look like in terms of management? Well, is the purpose of management to make money? Or is the purpose of management to try to integrate individual societal and global goals? And where is the ultimate manager? Is the ultimate manager in a specific person? Or is the ultimate manager really allowing each individual to contact their deep inner silence, which is actually doing the managing, and begin to learn to act from there? So this and, and we're, we're not, MIU is not the only place where this is being discussed. The whole idea of consciousness being a fundamental, it's called a pr- primitive. That is, time and space exist, but David Chalmers says maybe consciousness is something which exists. It's a building block out of which everything has come. Yeah. I mentioned Philip Goff, who is suggesting with panpsychism that consciousness pervades the universe. What Dr. Nader is doing, he's giving, I think, a complete picture of that, that yes, consciousness not only pervades the universe, but it's fundamental, it comes first. And its interactions actually produce the orderly change that we see around us. And this is going to lead to differences in um, theology. Yeah. Yeah, is God out there or is really God in here? Yeah. And really permeating our being. It's change in economics. It's going to be a change in education. You know, what is education? Is education filling a pail or is it lighting a light? Yeah. And is it giving that deep inner desire of the person the ability to come forth and shine? So on one level, I don't think the world will look much different in a consciousness-based paradigm. There still be schools, businesses 
still be podcasts, there'll still be artists and scientists and computer scientists. But I think what will happen is everyone will be acting to try to support the well-being of everyone else. We'll see yeah. that we're we're part of a larger system, and that's what we're trying to to maximize. That's really cool. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned both uh, Philip Goff and David Chalmers. Those have been guys that you know have been cool for me to hear from. Kind of what's the what's the philosophical perspective that maybe you know. Uh, hasn't connected to the scientific side or, or what, what, what have you. So I'm curious, like, have you met with those guys? Like, I'd love to hear what they thought of all the research that you and, you know, Dr. Nader and the folks have been doing at MIU. Uh, have not, I've been in lectures they've given, have not talked uh-huh. with them. Um, Dr. Nader has a series of podcasts and one of them is with Philip Goff. Oh, great. Um, so you and, and the podcast listeners can just go on YouTube, put in Philip Goff, Dr. Nader. It's, quite an interesting podcast because they start off very professionally and Philip Goff is just saying what he usually says. In the end, after hearing Dr. Nader speak from this angle of consciousness as all this is, he begins to open up and he begins to ask very deep penetrating questions he's always had. Uh, it's, and he's a smart guy. And see him... Um, almost stop becoming a professional philosopher and becoming a human being with these very basic existential questions that he's always had. Uh, so, so it's, it's delightful. Wow. I, I love that. I, I look forward to uh, watching and we'll share it in the show notes. Great. So one question I had for you, um, do you believe that consciousness is non-localized? It's both. Interesting. Um, as a field, it's non-localized but it can participate in time and space when it interacts with the nervous system. The analogy I like to give in my classes, um, you have the sun, that's like pure consciousness, which just exists. It's shining all 360 by itself. And then you have different reflections off of iron and earth and water and oil and so on. And the reflection is made up of two things. Reflection is made up of the qualities of the object of the reflector mm-hmm. and the sun. Mm-hmm. And I see that's who we are. We're fundamentally, we are that field of consciousness. We're not our body. We're not our age. We're not our sex. We're not our education or anything. But we are that lively field of creativity that wakes us up every morning. And what that does, it interacts with the physiology, the reflector, and we get individual experience. Mm. So, yes, consciousness can be located in the functioning of an individual. And that individual, through transcending, can actually experience their basis in the sun, in pure consciousness. Mm. And then they can appreciate this full range of who they are. Wow. <laughs> so, another question I had for you, you know, and I've... um. I've been pretty critical on the show in the past of just our current pharmaceutical paradigm and and our healthcare system. Um, And I'm curious to get your thoughts, you know, as we think about the implications of a consciousness-based paradigm and and how dramatically, I think, viewing modern medicine through that lens, we're going to recognize that, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of practices that we've done in the past weren't so smart, or we've been, you know, devoting our attention to the wrong things. Um, and so I'm curious if you had the opportunity to kind of go in and, and start from scratch with like a new healthcare system or or new healthcare education system, right? What are some of the things that you would recommend we start thinking about first? That's a great question. 
Our medical, if you think back 200 years ago, they used to have bloodletting and leeches and so on. And that was what educated, thoughtful physicians were doing. You know, now we have fMRI and we have blood transfusions and we have vaccines. That's what educated, respectful, responsible medical profession is doing. How this is going to be different in the future, um, I think it would be less material-based and it'd be more consciousness-based. And that is realize that every state of the physiology is a result of a mental decision. So rather than relying on pharmaceuticals, we should give, be giving people ideal daily behavioral routines. Mm -hmm. Not that the medicines would be completely thrown out because what they're doing is they're helping to stop a situation which has been cascading downwards in a very strong way. So they stop that. And then the individual through their orient of their attention, their activity, sleep, exercise, diet, what they do with the mind, so that will change. On a more fundamental level, Dr. Nader brings up the idea that if we have this field of consciousness interacting with itself, producing what we talked about is the Veda, that Veda is actually the blueprint that comes out and creates the whole universe around us. Mm -hmm. So if there is some mistake in the expression, you want to re-enlive the original pattern that is underneath the physiology. And that's done fundamentally through transcending. Uh, we talked about listening to Vedic literature. It's done through herbs. What the herbs are doing is they're re-enlivening some piece of intelligence that allows the wholeness of intelligence to take mm -hmm. us back to this original pattern. So the whole nature of the healthcare could change. And also, doctors will not be staying up 36 hours and shifts and <laughs> and, yeah. and and being limited 10 minutes per per patient and so on yeah i that i mean that part of it is so crazy to me and um are you familiar with dr matthew walker no he's he's a sleep scientist and he talks in his book all about that right like you're putting you're basically setting up doctors to be in the absolute worst physiological conditions to you know be be working with patients Yes. <laughs> and it's because when you're rested, the whole brain is functioning and you're, you see the big picture. You can focus in what part of the symptom of the person in front of you is important. Mm -hmm. When you're tired, you miss that. It's called vigilance. You're just not aware of what are the obvious cues which are there. And you just begin to function on automatic. And that leads to misdiagnoses. Hmm. Yeah. And and also physicians have the highest burnout of any occupation. Mm -hmm. It is so ironic. People who are sacrificing themselves for others are ending up burning themselves out. And it's um that has to stop. It's just it's not it's not right. It's not uh fair to these people. Very high minded, very ideal. They they would like to maintain the health of themselves, individual and public health, and they're losing their own because of it. Yeah.
Yeah, it's crazy. And not even just that, but, you know, the fact that you have to go through seven years of incredibly expensive medical school, take out massive loans and, and, you know, amounts of debt. I mean, it's it's quite a a long time until you even are in the the black from all that investment. It's crazy. Yes. There's um, in Stritch Medical School in Chicago, they actually have a class where the students learn TM as part of their education. Um, Stritch is amazing. They've always, um, I think they're a Jesuit school, but they've always been aware that you have to attend to the spirit of the physician. Um, Just not teach them skills, but actually to the actual core of the physician. And that's what makes a great physician. Yeah. And so uh, this has been going on for 10 years, I think now. And and the effects are just phenomenal. These people going through medical school, which is test after test, it's very stressful, are finding that they can get through it without the corresponding stress. They can begin to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. They can begin to be friends and have relations with other people. They're just not completely trying to study because the more tired you are, the more the longer you have to study to take in the same amount of information. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Um, now, you recently published an article about a topic that's definitely, you know, uh, very near and dear to my own heart, and that was with regards to the relationship between psychedelics and transcendental meditation, uh, or lack thereof, rather. So I would love if you could talk a little bit about that <laughs> article and what were some of the conclusions you came to. Yeah, thank you, Jordy. Uh-huh. I think the current embracing of psychedelics is reflecting the desire of people to go beyond the surface sensory area of life. Mm-hmm. And so what is it doing? Um, in this paper, I report two things. Just what is the brain pa- what are the brain patterns during transcending? What are the blood flow patterns during transcending? And what are the brain patterns during uh, psychedelic use and blood flow? And we find they're completely different. Every paper reporting brain patterns with psychedelic use report gamma EEG. And it's expected because the experiences are very intense. Your attention is completely gripped by, overwhelmed by, completely identified with what's going on. Mm-hmm. With transcending, it's the opposite. We talked about the mind becoming more silent, more awake in itself. Blood flow is different. Blood flow decreases to the brain in all brain areas during psychedelics. During transcending, there's lower blood flow to the brain stem, so the body is quiet, mind is quiet. But at the same time, what's happening is there's heightened blood flow to the front part of the brain, Mm -hmm. the part of the brain that organizes life. So the brain patterns are fundamentally different. The application, the experiences themselves are reported to be different. Psychedelics, it's changing uh, strong emotional experiences, heightened significance to everything going on. Again, the content is amplified versus just transcending. Yeah. Psychedelics have been used successfully in clinical cases. And it's not frequent psychedelic use, but it's once typically, and that's it. Mm -hmm. And it's part of a therapy. It's called psychedelic-assisted therapy. And you become... You trust a therapist after 15, 20 sessions, and then they might suggest the next time, uh, let's we'll ingest psilocybin and I'll be there and we can yeah. just discuss. And what the the way it's understood is as the blood flow is decreasing to the brain, all of the modules, the distinct modules of the brain of how we process things break down. 
So what happens is something called unconstrained cognition. That's the scientific term for the hallucinations and the strong emotional experiences that you have. But what that's doing is letting people look at their habit patterns in a different way. Hardest thing to do is change your habit because you're completely caught up in it. With a psychedelic experience, you can begin to see that habit in a different way. Mm-hmm. And then the therapist helps you uh, deal with that. It's important that what's happening is the success of psychedelic-assisted therapy is being used to promote psychedelic use in a more casual way. And that's inherently dangerous because you're very success su- suggestible under psychedelics. Mm-hmm. So some small thing can happen in the environment. It can have a negative effect. So the point that the paper is coming to is these two experiences are just fundamentally different. It's not right to equate them. Uh, it's not right to suggest that psychedelic experiences may help your meditation experiences. And just because the whole, the two of them are so completely different. And so that's the the bottom line that I try yeah. to come to in the paper. That's interesting. Well, uh, first and foremost, I just really appreciate that you are, uh, you know, talking about psychedelics and its relationship to Maharishi Vedic science and everything. You know, that was, um, as I mentioned, it's it's been an important part of my journey and my awakening process. And frankly, it was, you know, uh, it was a concern I had before coming to MIU. And, and I talked to Dr. Wegman about it, just saying, hey, you know, is this a, is this a topic I can bring up or is this going to be shunned? And he's like, no, it's, it's not something we've necessarily spent a ton of time on in the past, but you know, you should, should feel free to explore it. So, so again, I appreciate you, uh, you know, you looking into to some of the implications here. Um, now I want one thing I wanted to ask you about, cause I think I, I would certainly agree with your, your views that, you know, the, that transcendental consciousness and the psychedelic experience are different, but one distinction I want to make that, um, you know, I think uh, the guys at Imperial college of London did, did a really good job of is kind of bifurcating the psychedelic experience between what I'll call the the one that doesn't get through that breakthrough moment, right? And the ones that do get through to that drug-induced ego dissolution, as they call it. And that that's what happened to me back in June of 2021 that really kind of very quickly uh, accelerated my spiritual awakening process. And, you know, I've never had the kind of spontaneous kundalini awakening experience, but, you know, from what I've read about it, from what I've read in Dr. Pearson's book, it does seem like there are similar ontological overlap in in between those two experiences so i'd be curious to get your thoughts on that front yeah um again the the psychedelic experience just as it did for you it gave you a new perspective to actually solidify that additional psychedelic experiences are not useful and that's where systematic transcending uh, paying attention to lifestyle and so on and the similarity between kundalini and drug experiences it's what the kundalini is it's a natural process it's the whole physiology is an integrated system and indeed it's the activity up the spine i think that drives and supports the experience of transcendental consciousness if you manipulate it and there's not a smooth flow there's going to be a blockage it's going to lead to uncomfortable experiences um, and you know even even worse even great instability Mm-hmm. But as the physiology becomes more balanced and settled, that will rise, Kundalini will rise on its own, and it won't be experienced as a rush. It won't be experienced as any movement because there's no there's no point there. There's no stress. There's no 
a bending point where it's going to be affected. It's just that which is enlivening the whole physiology. And again, how does that relate to the drug experience? I'd have to look at the physiology. I would guess gamma EEG would probably be there because yeah. if it's a the experience is a very um, dramatic experience, Kundalini, then you'll have that gamma EEG. But again, it doesn't have to be jarring. It doesn't the Kundalini experience. It doesn't have to be harsh. It doesn't have to be unbalanced. It can just be the natural reawakening of the physiology to hmm. to what it is. Interesting. And this is some, there's um, meditations where you have extensive fasting and uh, extensive body postures to try to manip- put the physiology in a, in a state so it can have this experience of the transcendent. And that's where these issues of the kundalini actually creating imbalance can happen because it's not a, a global overall awakening. It's our individual intellect and they're trying to do what it can, but it lacks the whole, doesn't see the big picture. Mm. Interesting. What I'd have to also imagine just the, that Kundalini experience by definition is is really difficult to measure because it, it, it can happen spontaneously, right? You're not, you're not connected to EEG machine at the time. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. I got 10 more minutes. I have to get this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's funny. Um, now I also wanted to chat with you about, uh, the idea of, you know, the field effects of consciousness and getting back into, you know, non-locality. Um, you know, what are the implications here for, for the field effects of consciousness, for world peace, um, and yeah. That is the real paradigm-breaking research that's been done. And what I've been doing with brain functioning and physiology, people even in the materialistic paradigm can accept it, can read my papers, they can see a pattern they haven't seen, they can see something different. But the collective consciousness effect that people sitting, stimulating this underlying field of consciousness at their own thought can actually affect people at a distance, this non-local effect. That's completely outside of the materialistic paradigm. So much so that sometimes scientists can't even read the papers. They just get angry at it. Because for them, the whole thing sounds childish. It sounds uh, superstitious. It sounds cult-like. It sounds not thoughtful. Because for them, if you if there's a problem, you have to deal with the problem. You have to go, you have to have talks, you have to have treaties, you have to uh, see what the other person's problems are and so on. But what is happening is because we're not individual billiard balls just clashing on the pool table of life, but rather we're part of the larger system within which we live. And as we're transcending, we're getting close to that part which is common to everything and everyone in that larger system. So by stirring that underlying field, you can actually make it more functionally significant in others. And again, it's that field, that wakefulness, that curiosity, that drive to explore. That's what's becoming more functionally significant. And people begin to be more attentive. They begin to be more thoughtful and so on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and what's looked at in terms of scientific uh, research, um, but we start in the beginning. Where for my dissertation, I looked at the effect of one person practicing TM on a person next door. Mm-hmm. Person next door was a meditator. Excuse me, was a non-meditator. They're doing a concept learning task. I looked at the rise and fall of the coherence in the meditator, 
EEG while they were meditating. And then they looked at the rise and fall of coherence in the non-meditator during their concept learning task. And as the coherence went up in the meditator, so the coherence went up in the non-meditator. And when their coherence was higher, they did better on their concept learning task. Wow. And then we say, okay, let's take this a little bit further. And we, uh, Kurt Kleinsnitz for his PhD dissertation had one person come in and meditate 12 times. Unknowns to that person, we had a group of graduate students come in and they either meditated or read a textbook. Person meditating didn't know this was happening. Kurt didn't know what the group was doing. He was in another room with a machine. I told the group what to do. And we put him into group A, group B, and then Kurt analyzed the data. And then we broke the code. And what happened is when the group was practicing TM themselves, the person in the room said that her experiences were deeper. She had softer breathing, one of the markers of transcendental consciousness. She had more of this alpha coherence, another marker of transcendental consciousness. And then a little bit further, uh, Ken Walton looked at what's the effect of people in the domes that we have here on campus, mm -hmm. the rising and falling numbers, and serotonin and cortisol in non-meditators in Fairfield. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what he found is as the numbers went up and down, so serotonin levels went up and cortisol levels went down. Serotonin is well-being. Cortisol is a stress hormone. And then we can go to the larger research, which has looked at... Um, in cities where we have 1% of the population meditating, crime rate goes down. Mm -hmm. And I think crime rate is going down because people don't have that desperation. Um, they realize, oh, there's something else I can do to fulfill this desire for food or for you know, whatever material gains they need. And then the larger studies that were done on in 1980, when we looked at the whole world and when we had... 1% of the world meditating. We looked at the, the crime rate. We looked at stock market and so on. So this there's been 20 published studies that have looked at this model that yes, everyone is intimately connected. And by acting not from the superficial level of talk and behavior, but from the fundamental level of consciousness, you can actually affect a change in the world. Wow. Wow. That's, I mean, it's so profound and I love on like the, uh, the, even the webpage for, um, for the Maharishi effect, it talks about, we think this could be the most important research being done in the field of social sciences. And I, I have to agree. Um, now I would love to ask you about something a little bit more, more speculative, but, but kind of fun to think about. Um, and please correct me if I'm, uh, misinterpreting Maharishi's theory, but it is, is there not believed to be at some point when we reach, 1% of the world's population being in a state of com cosmic consciousness believed to potentially be this kind of super radiance effect on the rest of the world? Or, or how should I, am, am I, you know, stating that correctly? It's 98% correct. All right, cool. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> and so if it's 1% of the world is practicing TM, so they don't need to be in cosmic consciousness, just transcending twice a day. Or if the people have learned the advanced technique, the TM City program, then it's the square root of 1%. And this is the number, the quantitative measure, which has been used in the collective consciousness papers, collective consciousness research. Curly King and Ken Cavanaugh uh, looked at this in a very rigorous way as they took numbers below 1,500 
number between 1500 and 1800, which at the time was square root of 1% from the US. And then above that, uh, which would be square root of 1% of the US and Canadian population. They looked at something called the misery index. It's unemployment, mm. it's inflation, it's one or two other things. And they found that there is no change in unemployment, inflation, the misery index below this threshold. There was a change at the threshold for the U.S., but not in Canada, and then a change in U.S. and Canada when they went above. So there seems to be a really lawful relationship between us and the system within which we live. Yeah. And what we do, um, acts of kindness are important. Um, transcending, getting to that fundamental field of being has even a larger effect. And Guy Hatcher asked this question, what would it be like when we have this 1% effect? And so he looked at, at um, there's a town outside of Skelmsdale where the dome is in England, it's called Merseyside. Merseyside used to be the murder capital of England. Mm. And then the Skelmsdale dome put up and Merseyside is a hundred miles away from there. And what Guy did is he looked at what happened as the numbers went up flying there in England. And first from Merseyside, it went from being the murder capital to the um, most vacation, um, the best place to go for a vacation. And he went and he looked and he didn't notice anything on the surface that was different. He looked at police, he looked at economics, he looked at yeah. civics, he looked at education, uh, religion. He didn't see anything that was different except people were working together. And I think that's fundamentally what is happening because everyone's trying to do their best. This I, I really think. They're trying to do the best based on how they perceive the situation. And as you're able to perceive the situation in a more accurate way, your decisions are going to be benefiting you, but also the other groups and people and organizations around you. And so that's fundamentally, you know, what the Maharshi effect would lead to. Wow. That's great. Well, hopefully, uh, it seems like, you know, people are catching on to the the idea that there's something there. So um, I'm excited to, you know, see, see, the world develop as the collective consciousness of society continues to elevate. Yeah. And your podcast will help shine the light on that. And people will wake up and say, Oh, is this real? And they'll put their attention on it. And then when that happens, more research will be done and then it'll become commonplace. Yeah, I hope so. I think it's, you know, yeah, just getting, getting uh, the word out there and getting, letting people hear directly from you. Right. Cause I think, there's such a media bias to dismiss anything consciousness based. And, and so uh, people tend to think that folks maybe in this field of research or, you know, woo woo are not credible. Right. But it's like absolutely the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So, so uh, just to wrap up, we'd love to just ask you too. I mean, what, what are the new uh, studies going on at the center for brain consciousness and cognition these days? Um. The main study is we're exploring in greater depth people reporting higher states of consciousness. We talked up to cosmic consciousness earlier, where the deep inner science of the transcendent is there along with waking and sleeping. But as you continue to meditate, grow, that deep inner science begins to permeate the world around you. And you don't perceive life in terms of differences, you perceive it in terms of harmony. What is a larger wholeness which is there? 
and and that's how the the world becomes more pleasing um it's 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 awesome looking at how each piece each blade of grass each tree each each bird uh the clouds everything are part of a larger system and then ultimately you see that that wholeness which is integrating everything is that same value of self-referral consciousness which is the basis of your own being and so we're getting individuals who have a range of these experiences we're interviewing them to try to bring out the felt experiences of these higher states and then we're looking at brain functioning wow that's amazing (laughs) (laughs) it's a great project to be doing um and if folks want to learn more about your research or about miu uh, are there any uh, you know um, resources you'd recommend they check out yes um there's a number of resources once one is my website it's drfredtravis.com it's D-R-F-R-E-D. It's all one word. Another is MIU has a very rich online smorgasbord of talks, not only that I've given, but Dr. Hagelin has given, other scientists have given. And so that's miu.edu slash online. Also, in terms of books, I've written a book called Your Brain is a River, Not a Rock. It's a good overview of everything we've spoken about today. And also the book that Dr. Nader has written called One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness. What it is, is a exposition on the idea that consciousness is all there is. And he takes you from where he started as a medical doctor, his understanding of conscious experience and so on. What is normally understood in terms of modern science is very readable. It's very deep. So these are some resources your readers might like to get. Fantastic. And I'll uh, make sure to include those in the show notes as well. Thank you, Jordan. Yeah. Thank you again, Dr. Travis. It was my pleasure to get to uh, meet you and interview today. This was so fun. Yeah. Your questions were great. I enjoyed it as well. All the best, sir. Awesome. Thanks. You too. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this episode, Dr. Travis discussed the points of contention regarding neuroscience between Western science and Vedic science. The paradigm conflict between these two approaches to the world stems from Western science's grounding in a materialist-based cosmology versus Vedic science's foundations in a consciousness-based cosmology. Here's a section from Dr. Tony Nader's book, One Unbounded Ocean of Consciousness, which highlights Western science's hard problem of consciousness in the wall that traditional Western science has hit in explaining the explanatory gap. The Australian philosopher David Chalmers made a distinction that has become widely known between what he called the easy problem and the hard problems of consciousness research. The easy problems involve discerning the neural basis or correlates for mental functions, such as memory and forgetting, while the hard problem is to understand and explain why and how these functions result in subjective experience. The easy problems in the field of consciousness are problems that scientists feel confident they will one day be able to resolve, involving neural processes that can be measured and given enough time, understood, and explained. How our vision works to enable us to see is an example of an easy problem that is already largely solved, although from the perspective of neuroscience, it is highly complex. Delineating such neurological processes is the easy task. The difficult task is, how does the physical brain give rise to the subjective experience of consciousness? How does it happen that you subjectively experience the redness of the red? 
How is this possible? It is a universal phenomenon that we accept uncritically, yet it is actually astonishing. How can a mass of neurons inside our skull be translated or transmuted or manifested as the experience of love or the color green or sleepiness or enthusiasm? Science does not know the answer, and some refer to this as the explanatory gap. The fact that a specific part of the brain lights up on a PET scanner when we experience something does not actually answer the question. It is the mechanical answer, but not the whole truth. It says there is a correlation between the experience and the brain, but it does not reveal how this abstract reality, my perception, my internal subjective experience, and my reaction to it, which science now speaks of as qualia, can come from this very physical activity of the nervous system. The question remains, how do the objective events of the physical mechanics of perception leap the chasm to become subjective experiences? One of the most remarkable features of the human quest to understand nature and the universe is the extraordinary correspondence between our conceptual formulations of the laws of nature, especially their mathematical formulations, and the way things are in the physical universe. This correspondence has amazed scientists for centuries and moved many, especially in earlier eras, to see mathematics as a window to the divine mind. That intelligence or consciousness, however we conceive them, underlying the working of both natural phenomena and the human mind. Nader goes on to flip the hard problem of consciousness on its head. He argues that the answer to this hard problem is that our physical brains do not give rise to the subjective experience of consciousness. Quite the contrary, the foundation of our manifest reality is an abstract field of pure consciousness. The self-interacting dynamics of this field manifest as our localized minds, our physiologies, and our universe. Here is Nader again. In light of our working theory that consciousness is all there is, because all that exists is in essence nothing but consciousness, and everything else, whether thoughts, trees, planets, or universes, are patterns and modes of consciousness, the dynamic play of consciousness within itself those patterns and modes of being interaction operate both in the external realm of objects as well as in the internal subjective realm of conceptualization. Thus we find those patterns or modes of being both in the world and in our minds. These patterns of consciousness construct our minds, our nervous systems, and our universe. All are plays within the one consciousness. Thus what makes most sense to our minds inwardly also applies outwardly. Mathematics reflects the universe because the complexities of our minds, our physiologies, and the universe all occur within the one consciousness. Dr. Travis and the researchers at the Center for Brain Consciousness and Cognition have applied this thesis, that consciousness is all there is, to the findings of modern neuroscience. When we start to consider brain functioning and human physiology in that context, the results are absolutely astonishing. Here are a few of the abstracts from Dr. Travis's published research. Number one, testing the field paradigms of Maharishi's Vedic psychology, EEG coherence, and power as indices of states of consciousness and field effects. Vedic psychology, as formulated by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, proposes a field paradigm of psychology that links current theories of psychological phenomena with a systematic understanding of a field of pure consciousness from the Vedic tradition. The, this paradigm hypothesizes that the unified field of natural law described by physics is a field of pure consciousness that can be directly experienced and thoroughly investigated in simplest form of human awareness through a series of technologies, the Transcendental Meditation, TM, and TM City program. This field paradigm was tested with three experiments, the electroencephalographic EEG patterns of contact with this field through the TM technique and of acting within it through the TM City program were identified. Then the field effect of a TM City expert on a non-meditating subject was tested as measured by the dynamic relationship of their EEG patterns. 
These results support a field model of consciousness that could affect a fundamental shift in psychology, providing a broader basis for understanding by the functioning of individuals and their relationship with the environment. Number two, pure consciousness, distinct phenomenological and physiological correlates of consciousness itself, 2000. This paper explores subjective reports and physiological correlates of the experience of consciousness itself, self-awareness isolated from the processes and objects of experience during transcendental meditation practice. Subjectively, this state is characterized by the absence of the very framework, time, space, and body sense, and content, qualities of the inner and outer perception that define waking experiences. Physiologically, this state is characterized by the presence of apnoustic breathing, autonomic orienting at the onset of breath changes, and increases in the frequency of peak EEG power. A model called the junction point model is presented that integrates pure consciousness with waking, dreaming, or sleeping. It could provide a structure to generate a coherent program of research to test the full range of consciousness and so enable us to understand what it means to be fully human. Number three. Transcending as a Driver of Development, 2016. This paper draws from three different bodies of research to discuss the hypothesis that age-appropriate experiences enhance brain and cognitive development throughout the lifespan. These age-appropriate experiences could be considered as the drivers of development at each age, including drivers to foster development beyond adult abstract thinking, as described in Piaget's formal operational stage. We explore how a nurturing caregiver is the driver in the first two years of life, how language learning is the driver from 3 to 10 years, and how problem-solving is the driver in the teenage years. To develop beyond adult rational thinking, we suggest that the driver is transcending thought, which can result when practicing meditations in the automatic self-transcending category, such as transcendental meditation. Number four, consciousness is primary. Science of consciousness for the 21st century, 2021. In the 20th century, the understanding of matter was transformed from a world of classical objects to a world of probabilities that were excitations of non-material quantum fields. Psychology may be involved in a similar transformation. In the 20th century, psychological models included specific classical contents such as memories, attention, or emotions. However, some thinkers model consciousness as more field-like. Chalmers asserts that consciousness is an irreducible part of matter along with time and space. Goff maintains that consciousness permeates reality and is expressed in degrees in different structures. Tononi's integrated information theory posits that consciousness is a fundamental property of any physical system, and the degree of consciousness expressed reflects the power of the present state to affect the probability of its past and future states. Nader's model goes beyond these concepts and postulates that consciousness is a non-material, non-physical reality that exists entirely by itself. It has an ontological existence and generates matter, governs the interactions between material structures, and is responsible for individual subjective experiences. This model is supported by direct experience of the field of consciousness, called pure consciousness, during transcendental meditation practice. This allows empirical investigation of pure consciousness and of higher states of consciousness when pure consciousness is integrated with daily experience. The pattern you see in these studies and the dozens of other articles and books Dr. Travis has published is that consciousness is not some meaningless epiphenomenon as the materialists would have you believe. Rather, consciousness is fundamental to human physiology and to our universe at large. A hundred years ago, Nikola Tesla said, the day science begins to study non-physical phenomena, it will make more progress in one decade than in all previous centuries of its existence. 
Could the 2020s finally be the decade where this thesis proves true? If it is, what mysteries await to be discovered, not by searching outward, but by looking inward?